millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Well, thank you for joining us for a special episode of the AccuWeather podcast, Everything Under the Sun. I'm your host, meteorologist Regina Miller. I'm joined in the studio by my producer, Andy Robb. Happy Earth Day, Andy. That's right. It is Earth Day, and it's kind of rare we put out a show on Monday, but to celebrate Earth Day... We've got one for you, and we've got a really great show lined up today. We do, we do. I remember, uh, you know, in the 80s when I was in college, first Earth Day that I went to, and I was like, wow, this is kind of cool, you Mm -hmm. know, when it was just kind of starting out. But our guest today is Kathleen Rogers. She's the president of the Earth Day Network. She's going to talk about how this holiday of sorts got started. And also, uh, we'll be introducing our new correspondent, Maddie Baggett, who's going to be talking to Nancy Wallace, the director of the Marine Debris Program about the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. And we'll also be taking a look in our own backyard here in Center County and some tips about how you can minimize your footprint with Amy Scherf from the Center County Recycling and Refuse Authority. Lots of stuff all about the earth. All coming up right after this. Well, I'm joined on the phone now by Kathleen Rogers with more than 20 years as an environmental attorney and advocate. She is the president of the Earth Day Network. So thank you so much for joining me today, Kathleen. Thank you for having me. I wanted to know, when did Earth Day originate? Like whose brainchild was it and and how did it start? In the late 60s, it became painfully obvious and probably before that, that 150 years of industrial development, well, has brought progress in many regards. It had left the United States and other developed countries with a legacy of amazing pollution. And so the legacy of industrial development, and of course that continues till this day, it it, it isn't fixed, uh, became the subject of great interest of a number of people, including uh, Senator Gaylord Nelson, who was a young senator from Wisconsin, Uh, who had had even discussions with President Kennedy about pollution in the early 60s, he came up with an idea to create Earth Day. And that was the result, I think, of believing that the youth movement in the country might actually take charge of this very important issue. And it was also a period of the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement. And so holding environmental teach-ins where a university would gather all of its students and discuss the issues of the day, would be a really good idea. He hired a very young organizer, a guy named Dennis Hayes, uh, who then, uh, through an incredible sheer determination of hiring many, many young people, came up with the idea uh, to do Earth Day and make it national and moved it off campuses or in addition to campuses into cities. And it turned out to be what still stands today as the largest civic engagement event in human history. He brought 20 million people out into the streets, very many and many, many youth. But in addition, there were, I call them suits, there were people in uh, in office attire, there were mothers and their kids, there were faith-based groups, indigenous groups, 
the list of demographics and people interested in this issue and doing something about it and recognizing the health problems associated with industrial development was pretty phenomenal. And so it became a nationwide movement and protecting us from the impacts of industrial development. And so it was a huge change in the environmental community, which then allowed um, many more people to enter into it, whether it was nurses and doctors and health officials, or whether it was um, teachers or parents, people suddenly became aware of and concerned about the impacts of pollution and Earth Day came to represent those concerns. That's one of the greatest achievements of Earth Day is that A, it galvanized 20 million people, which is a little more than 10% of the US population at the time. That moment kind of centered the world on the health impacts of industrial development and why we needed to do something about it. And in fact, right after uh, the first Earth Day, Richard Nixon was the president at the time and he created the first EPA, Environmental Protection Agency. It helped create an atmosphere, and it was bipartisan, if you can believe it, and it was allowed and created uh, the opportunity to pass some of the most forward-looking legislation in the history of mankind, really, to protect air and water and species and the right to know, the right to sue your government if they weren't enforcing environmental laws, and all of these concepts which were amazingly progressive concepts for that time and globally really unheard of. You provided opportunities for citizens to get engaged and to collect information and have the right to know what's happening from a health perspective to themselves and their kids. And these things all became laws. And it's really an amazing period of time to look back on not just the bipartisan spirit that inhabited of the halls of Congress and state legislatures. And so it was a, a honeymoon period that all Americans benefited from, and it all came out of that first Earth Day. Now, what were the original goals of the movement, and then how have have they changed over the years? Because, like, from the way I kind of understand it as one of the initial things is air quality was a real big issue. I've seen the pictures of people in the gas mask at protests and different things because the air quality with industries <laughs> were really bad, really bad. At the time, pollution was incredibly obvious. Now, if you had, you know, cadmium or heavy metals in your water, certainly you couldn't see it, but you could see runoff going right into your streams and rivers. You could see industries piping out smoke and spewing all sorts of chemicals. You, you could see it. It was raining down on on communities and turning plants black. Well, and, I remember acid rain. Like back in the um, 80s, I exactly. remember hearing about acid rain and how it was That was a little harder things. to see mostly because you had to you had to understand why the Adirondack rivers, which were considered the most beautiful and clear and clean water, were fishless. There weren't any fish in these huge lakes in the Adirondacks, small and large, because some of this acid rain, you know, fell on these lakes and, and turned the water quality to a, you know, place where it was entirely inhospitable to many fish species. So you were... You could understand the connection of weather patterns and pollution from the Midwest and what it was doing to lakes and streams around the world. And we had, if you can imagine, we had a human population that, while it seems intuitive to us and obvious because we grew up with weather and we grew up with understanding these issues, it wasn't intuitive to people back then. People scratched their heads and said, 
why don't our lakes have any fish in them anymore? And finally, through science as the biggest proponent and force behind Earth Day and these laws, it became clear that there was a direct relationship between what industry was doing, in some cases what government was doing or not doing, and children getting sick. And they could be remote from the area, but downstream. It was an extraordinary time where it was eye-opening for many people. As I said, it wasn't intuitive. It required people more than anything, I think, to become knowledgeable. And I think there was generally a honeymoon period that existed from the first Earth Day for more than a decade that allowed the environmental community, governments, faith-based groups, everybody, corporations to coexist in a way that you don't see now, where it's could have a company that's saying, yeah, we're going to clean up our pollution, but they fund a trade association that's out there making sure that doesn't happen. And so you have a very complex communications situation that allows companies to get away with things that they wouldn't ordinarily and that they didn't back in the 70s because they were actually good working in good faith with the environmental community to change things. But it's, you know, the honeymoon is over. So I think that's the big difference between 2020 and 1970 is that at least big percentage of the pollution was obvious and you could see it and and when it was cleaned up we thought we were done but climate change and human population growth and corruption have all led to a situation of where we are now and I think failure to build an army of people of green consumers and of activists and failure to educate kids on environment and science And then the failure to educate people about environment and science and and attach it to civic engagement, understanding that you have the right to know and you have the ability to act is not something that we teach our kids. And so we need to reformulate the way we educate kids because in the end, someone's going to make a lot of money cleaning up the world. And I just soon have it be the countries that were in the vanguard and decided to be honest and straightforward and invest climate or how uh, we build a world where you can still make money and still have healthy populations and still uh, clean up the mess we've clearly made. It's just being willing to let go of what's old and familiar because it's the way it's always been done into new innovations of, well, this is the way it can be with a little bit of growing pains. Yeah, I mean, I think back to uh, industrial development and age, and uh, that was an age that was awesome. And we see it now also, we've seen it in technology. There's that opportunity in the energy market will dwarf the technology development. It will dwarf it. It's so much bigger. And so why aren't we taking advantage of it? Even if you didn't believe in climate change, why not clean the place up? Doesn't make any sense. And also, you know, the the renewables have to catch up. We have to make the market really conducive to have all these entrepreneurs come in and solve distributed energy issues. And and it's not just here. It's around the world that we all have an energy problem, whether it's inexpensive energy or green energy or no energy at all. Um, these are massively huge opportunities to make money and create new technologies. And uh, as I thought America was all about, you know, solve big global problems and stay as the leaders of the world, which is where I think we should be.
Mm-hmm. Now, one thing I wanted to ask you is we try to break it down to a, a, just a personal level of what are some things that each one of us can do today to reduce our environmental footprint? We got a country where you can actually make a difference if you vote. And so registering to vote and voting, we call it vote for earth. Buy green, you can recycle, you can eat healthy food, you can buy local, buy organic, all the things that we need to be moving towards. All of those things are critically important for things you do in your personal life. But in my view, the number one thing you got to do is vote green. I don't care what party. It's not about partisan anything. It's who's got the best plan for any country that will create new investment in green technologies and cleanups you know, really solidify a country's position as a maker and doer around green energy. So voting is the number one thing I think people should do in their personal lives. And anybody over 18 in this country can do that. So that's my number one thing. And and personally, of course, caring about recycling, as I said, caring about where you get your food, what's in it, because that supports a market that is going to grow and grow and grow. And then being really engaged and trying to engage other people in what you believe in. And I think that's really important. Where can someone find out more about Earth Day and how to get involved? Go to our website and we have a great campaign called Protect Our Species. We are seeing such an extraordinary decline in what I call flagship or species that are critically important for continued human survival. So let's take insects. But if you've looked around in the last 10 years, many fewer bugs. In some countries, you have 75% drops in key insect populations, which feed the animals that we depend on or care about. And so we have a global problem with species that are not the megafaunas. If you look a little deeper, you'll see that bird populations and bat populations and insect populations and frogs and fish are all in decline. The oceans are full of plastic and there's overfishing and bycatch. We have to rebuild it. And what does that take? It takes really dramatic leadership and willing to forego maybe really immediate profits for something longer term that will benefit your country and the world. You know, getting engaged on all these issues is beyond your average person, but seeing the larger context for what's going on with species generally is what drove us to create our theme for this year. But it's really important to recognize that our basic animal populations are in serious trouble. And there's, I don't think there are many exceptions. So Earth Day 2019 is about just making people understand that it's really important to look at other species and what the long-term impacts are. And then you connect those things to deforestation, eating meat, and all of the things that are actually threatening our future. Right. So that's the theme for 2019. And But for now, we think it's really important to focus on all living species and their place in nature. I'm, I'm one of those people that uh, really believes that there are many, many species feel compassion and they're smart. And we need to rethink about how we view ourselves in terms of nature overall and really see our place among all species as opposed to the top species, which a lot of people prefer to think of themselves that way for various Western and other reasons. But I think there are a huge number of people worldwide that see human beings in a place that can be both 
very spiritual and religions and faith-based, but see themselves as part of something bigger. And that, I think, is underlying what we really care about, the ethics of protecting all species. Right. And I think we're all connected. And I, uh, it's great to think about that and for you, you reminding us of that uh, with Earth Day and the Earth Day Network. So I really appreciate you taking some time to talk to me. It's sure. Very interesting. Come back for 2020. It's We hope to have a couple billion people involved and maybe we can move the ship a little bit in the right direction the way Dennis Hayes and Gaylord Nelson did on that first Earth Day almost 50 years ago. We will definitely check back in with you uh, with the 50th anniversary of the EPA and Earth Day. So thanks so much again. You're welcome. I really appreciate appreciate your time and thinking about this. Or thanks to Kathleen Rogers. And you can find out more about the Earth Day Network at EarthDay.org. Now we are going to take a move to the oceans and we're going to find out about the Great Pacific Garbage Patch with Nancy Wallace, director of the Marine Debris Program, with our correspondent, Maddie Baggett. I am joined on the phone by Nancy Wallace, director of the Marine Debris Program for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA. Hi, Nancy. How's it going today? It's going great. Thanks so much for having me. I just want to kick it off from the very beginning. What is a garbage patch? Well, a garbage patch is an area where debris accumulate. So we think of generally the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, which is in the middle of the Pacific, but there are actually five areas where debris can accumulate and really accumulating because there's things called gyres in the ocean. So it's areas where the currents really come together and bring whatever floating in the ocean um, all together. And so the garbage patch is unfortunately an area where there's a lot of debris or trash in the ocean that's coming together all in one particular spot. Is there a general area where they come from or is it from all over the world? Well, there's, as I said, there's five main areas and it's just a convergence zone. So it's where these currents come together. So the one that we think of most is in the Pacific and it's in the area between Hawaii and California and it can move. So it's not stationary, um, but they're generally they generally stay in the same spot. When you look at pictures of a garbage patch, they're obviously not the most attractive thing in the world, but aesthetically they're unpleasing, but how do they affect the environment? How do, when it gets in there, what are we looking at? What does it do to the environment? Well, a garbage patch is a collection of debris. So debris that's anywhere has, has the same impacts. It can be ingested by fish or by turtles or dolphins. Um, If it's a large pieces of debris, like a lost fishing net, it can entangle. So whales can be entangled or other marine mammals or birds. Um, And then, of course, there's the hazard to navigation. So if there's large pieces of debris and a ship is is going through that area, um, they can certainly impact as well. And then the thing about debris is it moves. So it's going to continually move throughout the ocean. And when it washes up on shores, it can damage habitat. It can start to cause economic damage to the local communities. So there's quite a lot of impacts from any types of marine debris that are out in the ocean, whether in they're in a patch or not. And do garbage patches affect human health in any way? Well, they certainly can because debris, again, is in the ocean. Um, so fish may eat the debris that's there. And what we generally talk about when we start thinking about potential relationships to human health is that we think about microplastics, so really small, tiny pieces of plastics. And the thing about those plastics is when they're in the ocean, there's a lot of 
pollutants that are already in our waters. And a lot of them are hydrophobic, meaning they don't really like to be in the water. So if there's a surface that they can jump onto, they will. And so these little tiny pieces of plastic can actually collect the different pollutants that are in the ocean already. And then when plankton or other types of seafood, or, I mean fisheries, are in the fish in the ocean, eat them, uh, the problem is, is we don't really know what happens next, how those fish are impacted, and then if we end up eating those fish, what happens? So there's a lot of unknowns, but it's a lot of, there's a lot of science going on right now to identify um, what the potential impact may be. Speaking specifically about the impact, we don't know now, but do you think, do you have a time frame at all, maybe 10 years, maybe 20 years to get this data? Well, there's a lot of science happening right now, but the thing about research is it does take time. Sure. And so I think what we do know is there's microplastics in a lot of things that we're already consuming in some of our drinking water, in other products like honey or salt. Uh, so, so we know we are ingesting these things, um, even outside of having them through our, our seafood. Uh, but then, yeah, the question is kind of what happens next. And so I think there's some studies, and I think maybe in the next five to ten years, I would certainly say we'll have some answers, but with any type of science, it's always evolving and we're always asking new questions. Now that's all the negative stuff, but there is some good stuff that's happening. What is being done to help clean up these patches? Well, actually cleaning up the, the garbage patches are kind of, that's really, really difficult. So if you think about trying to travel to the middle of the ocean, especially the Pacific Ocean, which is so vast, it's really time-consuming. Um, and one of the challenges with garbage patches is it's not necessarily a big patch of garbage. If it was, it would be easier to clean up. But a lot of the, the trash or debris is spread out throughout the water column. It can be very spread apart. You can actually sail through one of these garbage patches and not even know you're in it. So there's not a lot we can really do about cleaning up the open ocean. It's just really, really technically challenging. But there are a lot of great things happening, and we do a lot of cleanup close to shore. So there's a lot of different projects and lots and lots of groups working on this where you're cleaning up debris that's already in the environment close to shore or catching it in rivers or harbors before it can get out into the open ocean. And then the other thing that really is the most critical part of solving this problem is preventing new debris from entering our oceans in the first place. And again, there's a lot being done to try to prevent that flow of trash going into our seas. How can people educate themselves about garbage patches and how can we reduce our impact? Well, certainly about educating about garbage patches, you know, there's a lot of great resources. I can certainly say the NOAA Marine Debris Program has a wonderful website uh, where you can find a lot of accurate resources about what the garbage patches really are. And then how to help, well, there's tons of things that people can do in their everyday lives in terms of reducing the amount of products and single-use items that we use, refusing those items when possible, recycling, not littering, and then, of course, when we do have to dispose of something, disposing of it properly. Um, those are just kind of some simple actions you can take in your everyday life. You can also join a cleanup and help remove debris that's already out on, on our shores. Um, and then there's things that, you know, at the higher levels that governments and, um, can do at different levels in terms of making sure we have great recycling infrastructure and solid waste management infrastructure. So there's a lot that can be done in all different aspects of this problem. Perfect. All right, Nancy, I want to thank you so much for your time. And I want to thank you so much for speaking with us today. I know 
we have definitely gained a new perspective about garbage patches and how we can reduce our impact. So thank you so much. Oh, great. Well, thank you so much for having me. Now I am in studio with Amy Scherf, who is the Education Coordinator from the Center County Recycling and Refuse Authority. Hi, Amy. How's it going today? Hi, good. Thanks for having me in. Thanks so much for stopping by. I think this is a really important topic that we're talking about today, and I hope you can shed some light about what's going on in the environment. I'll try. All right. So we just spent some time talking about the Great Pacific Garbage Patch on a global scale, but from your perspective, how can we reduce our impact on a local scale so I think the biggest thing that people can do is make sure that they properly dispose of their trash so I know we just had a lot of windy days recently and you know if you have things laying outside I know if I open my car door sometimes if there's a big windstorm it's gonna fly out and if it's a really bad storm you're not gonna be able to get it um, so pretty much just make sure that you you know put your trash in your trash can tie that up put it in the right spot for the garbage man to come because when he comes to your house it will go to the landfill it will nothing that you properly dispose will end up in our oceans are there certain materials that are more dangerous to our oceans and to wildlife than others I feel like a lot of times you'll see a, um, small pieces of plastic. I, they call it the single-use plastics. I it was just that there was an exhibit at the Palmer that people collect all these single-use plastics. There's just so many of them. And if, But if you would just, you know, anything you bring somewhere, just take it back home with you so it's not blowing around and getting into places that wildlife can get into and in our streams and and just areas like that. Now we're at the AccuWeather headquarters here in State College and we're actually in Center County Recycling and Refuse Authority's backyard. Now what is your goal? What do you guys strive to do for our community? Well um, we are pretty much twofold. One is to encourage proper disposal of trash we don't want you know the trash flying around everywhere we want it to be properly disposed at the landfill but and my job is the recycling end so I like to talk about um, proper recycling practices how do you recycle what should you recycle what shouldn't you recycle and we work with a lot of um, local businesses and we even work with Penn State on helping them not to have such a big litter program after their tailgates the best way to recycle there so we work with a lot of um, different entities around us to make sure that they're recycling properly and disposing of their trash properly so summertime just around the corner what can we do when we hit the beaches when we pack a big lunch how can we make sure that we are disposing of our waste properly so that it doesn't end up hey right there next to the ocean exactly i i like to say you know if you if you bring something with you make sure you bring it home you know sometimes people think well it's just an apple it's just going to degrade well if, if you kind of have that kind of thinking then you'll think you can leave anything there. So make sure what you bring with you, you also bring back with you and make sure it goes into the trash can because if it doesn't, you never know where it's gonna end up. Is there a resource that people can easily reach that they can have access to to make sure that they are disposing of their waste properly? Um, yeah, so they could check out our website, centercountyrecycles.org. Pretty much my, my whole thing is I use Google a lot. So, you know, maybe Google with the best way to, um, you know, dispose of your trash or proper trash disposal. But I think the main thing is if it's in a bag and tied, there's no chance of it getting anywhere but where it's supposed to be at the landfill. 
Absolutely. Well, Amy, I want to thank you so much for stopping by. I know I feel much better moving forward as far as vacation time and just recycling in general to make sure that we don't impact our oceans any more than they already are. Thank you so much for dropping by. Thank you. Well, you know, uh, talking about recycling, guys, um, you know, one of the things that I learned recently, CBS News did a report that we're in a slow moving recycling crisis recycling crisis right um because what happened was china used to buy they were like a large buyer of the u.s plastics Mm -hmm. and then they would sort and clean them for recycling so we would sell them to them so they raised their standards and they're no longer taking plastics that are not cleaned different things like that so the problem is is if you're throwing things away for recycling Mm -hmm. and you're putting things that your recycling center doesn't take um some of it's just going into land landfills they just throw it right away well they throw it away because they said that yeah the money is not there to pay for recycling especially if they can't sell it to china now so like have you ever done that where like i know ken has Ken Pearl sitting here. I know you've no. probably done that. I what? don't know why I'm what, just assuming what, what, you did you, that. What are you assuming? I'm just sitting <laughs> here minding my own business. Well, so I was thinking about like when people, so they call it wish cycling. So it's okay. whenever you don't know exactly what plastics or different things that your uh, recycling place takes. So you just kind of throw in anything that's and you plastic. Just, you just hope for the best. And you kind of hope for and the then best. It's, and, but then once it's like the out of, sight, out, of, out of mind thing too. It's like right. once it's out at the curb. They know what to do. They'll take care of it. Well, that's why it's so important to have these kind of discussions on on an Earth Day, but we probably should have them more often uh, Mm -hmm. to kind of figure this stuff out. Because you're right. I I have done that. (laughs) Well, I think everybody's done it. And I don't mean to do it, but yeah. (laughs) I think everybody's done it. Yeah. Because like like for my recycling place, for example, they take one and two plastics, Mm -hmm. you know. But if you throw in like a five, that whole load gets tossed. So they were like, you know, you're ending up a whole load gets tossed like totally removed from recycling and it all goes to garbage so they're like you know if you think it's not going to be recycled just throw it away that's crazy yeah because it just ruins the rest of the recycling Hmm. so i just like to reuse so that's a good way to reduce your footprint and also if you are doing recycling you want to make sure that you check with your local recycling center on what kind of plastics they take for sure because you know at the bottom of some of your plastic containers there's a different code or a different type of stamp and that means certain kind of plastics aren't accepted so just make a phone call to your local recycling and refuse authority find out exactly what they're looking for so nothing's wasted when you put it out on trash day thanks so much for listening we'll have another episode out on thursday Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Be sure to subscribe to AccuWeather's Everything Under the Sun, giving you the stories behind the weather and so much more. New episodes every Thursday. Just search for AccuWeather on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or visit AccuWeather.com slash podcast. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.